Welcome to Antimatter Pod, a Star Trek podcast where we discuss fashion, feminism, subtext, and subspace, hosted by Annika and Liz. This week, we're discussing Star Trek Prodigy's mid-season finale, A Moral Star, Part 2. I have a lot of feelings. Hey, I posted on Twitter immediately after watching this episode that I think Star Trek Prodigy is my second favorite Star Trek series, after only Voyager. Because I was just like, I, I can't handle these feels. And the fact that in 24 minutes, they explode and explore so much. I don't want to rank them because it's hard and the Star Treks that I love the most are not necessarily the best ones. But I definitely think that even taking into account subjectiveness... Prodigy has the best first season of any Star Trek. Yes, for sure. It's just very tight. It's just, it's really, they knew what they were, they knew the story that they wanted to tell and they told it. The producers and writers have done a lot of interviews in the last couple of days, of course. And one of the things they keep saying is that as soon as they knew that they had an order for 20 episodes, they sat down and they planned. And that shouldn't be as novel as it is, but, I mean, we can see the work. They planned out the whole season? Yeah. Crazy. What, a, what an amazing idea. I know. And I do think it's easier to do that in animation. You're a lot less likely to run into problems where an actor gets injured and has to be written out for an episode or two, or... An actor just has no chemistry with everyone else and has to be replaced, so that character is just put on a bus. But in terms of the plotting, this is so tight. The time travel stuff is actually complicated, and I usually have a really easy time with time travel, so to speak. (laughs) The other thing that's happening is that I think his name is Aaron Hartz. I was tweeting with him yesterday, and I should remember his name. But in his interviews and on Reddit and even Tumblr, he is answering fan questions and just the sheer amount of thought that they have put into the world building and how Prodigy fits into what's happened a couple of years earlier in Lower Decks and what is about to happen with the Romulan rescue. Like, yes, it doesn't come across as Michael Chabon answering questions on his Tumblr or doing medium posts with world building that is not remotely apparent on screen. It's demonstrating how deeply they have filled in the background and that comes across on screen even when it's not overt. They absolutely thought about where in the timeline it was being dropped and how that was going to affect different things. Yeah. The background and the uniforms and how things line up is very interesting. They really put care into each decision and again, You're right, that is easier in animation because they're making the whole thing. So they don't have to worry about how to match something. They can recreate it exactly how they want it to be. And and that's a, a freedom. And it's why I love animation so much, that you can have aliens that you can't have. You can have that sand planet that would not make sense in live action. 
Yeah. And would be very, very difficult to, like, it would be animated anyway. <laughs> the VFX would be animated and it wouldn't look the same because the people would be people. And so it just, it would have a different feel. It would be more menacing and less magical. Yeah. And animation really frees you up for those kinds of things and for the ability to just, uh, like, change like you can do this with real lighting but because of the way that colors work and the colors and and painting works and how everything is put together it's easier to do a mood shift with mm. animation than it is with real lighting and and more subtle that is very apparent in prodigy that they're leaning into all of the different things they can do and I just love it. It just feels very uplifting. Mm. I don't know. I, I don't know what the word is, but I, I just, I, I feel happy when I watch it. It's the sheer joy of not just watching a story that I'm enjoying unfold, but seeing how competently it is made at every single level. And I think truly part of the genius is that they took the opposite approach to Star Trek Picard and filled their writer's room with people who were not necessarily the biggest Star Trek fans, but who had a lot of experience telling this sort of animated story for this sort of audience. And the Star Trek lore is secondary to that. It's great. I love how much they think about the uniforms and what are the synths doing and is the Federation overstretched? And that's really important. But I feel like not anyone could do it, but you can choose writers who are open to learning those facts and thinking about it. Yes. And also, you said you didn't want to rank. And I also, I hate ranking things. Mm, it's like choosing your favourite captain. Why would I do that? But the reason that I'm so drawn to it, I think, is that it is such a successor to Voyager mm. and that it's literally about these people who don't fit into Starfleet. They're the people who fall through the Starfleet cracks. And people say that that's Deep Space Nine, but the people in Deep Space Nine don't want to be in Starfleet. They don't join Starfleet at all. Yeah. Because they're very separate. They're a, a community that is surrounded by Starfleet, but isn't a part of Starfleet. Whereas on Voyager, they are assimilated uh -huh, into Starfleet, and yet they aren't the Enterprise crew. They aren't people who grew up wanting to be that. It's like, true. Even Harry Kim, which I would say is the closest, mm. is someone who picked Starfleet because, you know, he wanted to make his parents proud and he wanted to explore space and he wanted to have some adventure or something. But he didn't want to get lost into space and have that kind of adventure. Like, I feel like Riker would be totally fine getting lost in the Delta Quadrant. <laughs> or even Mariner. <laughs> Oh my god, she would have so much fun. Right, so that type of Starfleet personality is different from the people who ended up lost in the Delta Quadrant. Like, Janeway, as much as she wants to get home, she's also okay with it. Yeah. Anyway, I've always described Voyager as a bunch of misfits who end up having to be a crew, mm. and it turns them into a family. Yeah. Because... They're all they have. 
they could drop off on a planet and then never see the Voyager people or home again, but those are their options. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Deal with Voyager or never see anyone you know ever again. This show reminds me of that because there are people who had never even heard of Starfleet, but by the end of this episode were absolutely living up to Starfleet ideals and trying to be a Starfleet crew to the point where they were bringing that idea of what Starfleet and what a crew is and how you take care of a ship to all of these random miners that were stolen from all over the Delta Quadrant and creating a second fake Starfleet crew. <laughs> and it's wonderful. It's definitely a sequel to Voyager in terms of, look, Chakotay is there, Janeway is there, the Delta Quadrant is there. And I think that's great. I think if Picard and Lower Decks are sequels to Next Generation, then Prodigy is the sequel to Voyager. I do think Deep Space Nine deserves something. I almost wonder if that's what the Section 31 series will be. Well, Section 31 was introduced in... Exactly, exactly. And... That that can be the complex politics deconstructing the Federation series. You know, mm-hmm. I really want it to be set in the early 25th century, so after Picard. What if Alexander Siddig is a regular? Can you imagine? Just the idea of Siddig and Yo sharing a screen. I just got all wibbly. And I said it as Wait. a joke, but honestly, I think that would be amazing. Oh, my goodness. Amazing. That should be the follow-up. That should be Bajor considering joining the Federation again and a generation after the rebuilding of Cardassia, what's happening there? And what should Section 31 be doing about the Dominion? And how does Jojo deal with that in an ethical way? I mean, probably she doesn't, but... You're pitching an amazing show. Thank you. Thank you. I really, really (laughs) hope that the actual showrunners are thinking along the same lines. Anyway, yeah, I just wanted to say, like, I I have said before that I don't think that there's a plot to keep Deep Space Nine out of current continuity, but Prodigy has turned into such a love letter to Voyager that I kind of do feel like... Maybe Deep Space Nine deserves something. And only the bits of Deep Space Nine that I like, obviously. I mean, I think that Discovery shares Mm. Deep Space Nine themes at times. It does, but that's also a successor to Enterprise. So, you know, maybe Deep Space Nine is allowed to have something of its own. Anyway, let's go back to Prodigy. Yeah, that show. Uh, This was such a great... Great finale, and I am so excited to learn the truth about the Diviner. The Diviner's vendetta. Yes, and basically it's that he's terrible and he has been all along. Spoilers! (laughs) Again, child slavery. (laughs) Right. It is not not a shock to me. (laughs) You don't bring in John Noble for a, a not creepy person. I don't think he was creepy in Fringe. I think that he destroyed the entire world twice by accident. But yes. He's not standard either. Yeah. He's not the villain of Fringe, but he is the tragic hero, I guess. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So I was just, I'm not surprised that the Diviner isn't just a, you know, mustache twirling child slaver. 
No, not at all. <laughs> and again, I cannot get over how beautiful that entire sequence, the sequence with Gwyn and her dad and the destruction of Solemn was so pretty. He is so pretty. He's not attractive, but he's so pretty. It's just the, again, I'm going to call it painting because it looks so vibrant. No, there was a shot when they walk onto the holodeck and I remembered what you said back in the very first episode about how he looks like a painting. And I was like, oh, Annika was right. It's just amazing to me how much is there the layers of art (laughs) that are involved and in that whole sequence and i was just so i i put in our notes here and we briefly discussed it on on discord i feel that this version of solemn you know the idea of aliens arriving and it creating a civil war between the people (laughs) on the planet that destroys the planet. I was like, yeah, that's uh, that tracks. That sounds yeah. exactly what would happen if aliens came to Earth now. If a Vulcan showed up right now on Earth, it would not go well. It would not involve a jukebox <laughs> and a party in the woods. It would be a civil war that would destroy the planet. Yeah, and we definitely know which side of that civil war the Diviner was on. I have to assume that he was part of the movement that destroyed his planet and has Mm. not learned a single thing from that. Mm -mm. It's almost like he does sort of have this, it's it's not guilt, but it's like waving at guilt Mm. over the idea of, you know, I was a part of this, but the Federation is the cause. He doesn't take any responsibility. He doesn't find himself accountable. It's just that he was caught up in it. It was the Federation's fault. And he feels bad that that it happened. And he feels bad about what he did. But it wasn't his fault. He had to do that. Well, just like he had to employ child slaves. And also the regular kind of slaves. That's not better. I was wondering, because we do know that there is time travel involved... I was like, so were all of them stolen as children? And some of these people have literally oh, lived their no. entire lives in this mining camp. And that's horrible. That is so horrible that I'm just not going to entertain the possibility. Some of these people were enslaved as adults. <laughs> You've made the decision. I it have. It was just very, it was rough. Yeah. It was, it was very rough, the whole thing. And, you know, I so, okay. Uh, there's a podcast called Maintenance Phase. Which yes, is with about, Michael Hobbs. Yes, with Michael Hobbs and Aubrey. It starts with a G, I think, but she's your fat friend on yes, Twitter. Yes, yes. I know her work. And it's a very fun research podcast that, that does a deep dive into nutrition, diet, health, wellness, meditation, self-care, all that kind of stuff. And their most recent episode was on Belle Gibson. I forget her last name, but she, yeah, Belle Gibson, who's an Australian, so I thought of you. <laughs> but... Okay, okay. She grew up in a suburb where I lived for a few years, and also 
was last seen living in the neighborhood of my friend and they have the same coffee shop. So I saw that this was the topic and I was like, no, we can't let foreigners find out about Belle Gibson. This is so humiliating. (laughs) It was was very bad. It's a really, really rough ride. Go listen to it because it's a lot of fun to Mm. listen to. And also I was sobbing at the end. (laughs) It's like... It was devastating, but I swear this has to do with Prodigy. I cannot wait (laughs) to find out. I had a very similar reaction to the Diviner and to Solom that I had to Bill Gibson (laughs) because they revealed the tragic backstory stuff and you, you feel for them and you feel for all of this stuff that was lost or this is all the stuff that really happened to this person. And yet... What they did with it is, like, the worst possible thing. (laughs) And so you're stuck. You know me and how I love finding the humanity in terrible people. I, I have these two combating, you know, forces where I understand why this happened and why this person is damaged and I understand their trauma and I have sympathy and empathy and compassion for them, but also, wow, are you horrible? Like you're just a terrible person who does terrible things. And if you can't acknowledge that, which neither of them can, like you have to, like the, the thing about the diviner and Gwyn is that he, he said, I'm telling you everything, and now you're on my side, right? And she was like, no, you are still a terrible person who did terrible things, including to me. Yeah. So I'm not giving you a pass for this. Like, yeah, you had reasons, and I'm really sad about this too, and I now have sympathy and empathy and compassion for you, but also, you are horrible, and I am not on your side. And I was really proud of her for that. Yeah, because that is a hard road to walk with anyone, but especially with a parent, because we love our parents. I don't think Gwyn had any illusions about her father's morality by this stage, but she still wants a reason to have hope that he could improve. Right. Exactly. She wants to believe that he could make that journey, that he could Mm. realise his accountability, his responsibility, and he could try to fix it instead of exacerbating it and making it worse. Yeah. Which is what he's doing. Yeah. He's looking at this really big picture and completely failing to see how many people his personal actions have actually harmed. And I am willing to include the population of Solom in that. Absolutely. It might be a case of, oh, no, I didn't think that the xenophobic civil war that I fought in or possibly led was going to wipe all of us out. (laughs) I only wanted to wipe out the people who disagreed with me. Well, that's the thing about dictators. Mm. And I'm not saying he is one. No, but but I feel like he could lean in that direction a little. Yeah. And also, like, what is, you know, the diviner is not a name. That's a title. Yeah, so what is the deal here? I want to know what that is. Like, There's still more to the story that I don't think he's not telling Gwyn. I think that he doesn't, like, again, he's just not looking at at the whole thing. Like, he is so delusional and Mm -hmm. trapped in his own 
ideas of what happened and how he was wronged. Yeah, which makes his ultimate fate very interesting because he's exposed to Zero's true face and ends up, I guess, trapped in his own head. And by the end, I was kind of like, is that justice? It's a very cruel justice. I assume that he has a dreadnought to care for him, but I am uncomfortable with where they left it because, and I guess we'll talk about this more when we get to Zero. When we watched Is There in Truth No Beauty, I was really uncomfortable with the idea of this race that's so hideous they make people insane. And I think that they have separated the ugliness side of that story. But Yeah, again, that was super pretty. Yeah. Just saying. <laughs> when that happened, I was like, this isn't going to make me insane. No, I'm totally into it. But <laughs> the use of insanity as a plot device and a punishment, I just mm. don't like seeing mental health played that way. And I do hope that we revisit and that the diviner sees a more conventional sort of justice. Right. We don't actually know the rules of this, right? We don't know right. anything about Medusans. So what could happen is the Diviner is now sort of... Yeah, yeah, okay, so he's trapped in his own mind or whatever. And that causes him to reflect. Yeah. To have, like, a self-realization, you know, to go through that journey of oh, I am responsible for this and I have to atone for it and I have to do the work and I have to apologize. Mm. Like, let's start with that. Yes. Bringing it back to John Noble and Fringe, like, that's a reason to hire John Noble. True. If, you're, if, that's, if that's what you're going to do. If the second half of the first season is going to be the Diviner coming out of insanity arc, and I don't know if I expect that, but it is an interesting thing to think about. It is an interesting way it could go. Yeah. I just want to flag that I'm not comfortable using mental illness as a punishment. Oh, absolutely. Even though I also think that these are kids and they have not had the same opportunities to think about it in the way that we have. They were acting in the moment and... Mm -hmm. it's arguable that this was their only option to restrain the Diviner. Zero has that one line where they say, you use me against your enemies, and now I'm going to show you what that's like. Yes. And so I really feel like it was Zero's decision. And that's why I called it Zero's Revenge in yeah, the notes. Yeah, yeah. Because it really felt like Zero pitched this as what I'm going to do is get back at him for all of the people like this is another thing that's way too dark to think about <laughs> how many people did zero quote unquote help like that's horrible yeah. i'm very upset for poor zero because they didn't have the agency they didn't have autonomy like of course zero is desperate to find someone to help break them out and start this whole thing because that is a, a devastating existence. They would also be struggling with post-traumatic stress and all these things. And so they would be acting out of those feelings. And that's why this seems like justice to, them. to that type of person. 
to the person who's stuck in there, who is, again, we don't know how old Zero is and has also been absolutely traumatized for who knows how long. So, oh, yeah, yeah. It was absolutely empowering for Zero and it was what they needed to reclaim their sense of identity after being used that way. I just have qualms. That's all. And the fact that it also affected Gwyn accidentally, even though it seems to have been reversed pretty much immediately. But still, that's not nothing. Yeah, I, so I think that that helps Zero to realize what is actually happening and mm. how maybe they don't want to be a diviner and they don't want to use this power for ill. Yeah. And I don't even know exactly what happened to the diviner at the end, but if they somehow kept him around and in the plot, then Zero helping him come back oh. would also be a really interesting way for both the decision of, of Zero using the power against him and it hurting Gwyn and, you know, coming to that realization. There's a lot of interesting ways that that could go that I don't know if we're going to get in this show. Because again, it's a kid's show and it's an adventure and maybe we're the only people who are worrying about this. <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time. But also, time. this show has really surprised me with how incredibly deep and how incredibly dark it is. So yes. it could go there. I also wouldn't be surprised if they did. I definitely feel like we need to revisit the Diviner. We know from interviews that Janeway, real Janeway, will sort of be the antagonist for the next half of the season. But Janeway is not the enemy. And sooner or later, they are going to learn about the weapon aboard the Protostar. And that's probably going to lead them and eventually Janeway to Tars Lamora and the Diviner. Mm -hmm. Right. As long as we're talking about Zero, I do love that they have moved away from the ugliness factor about the Medusans, and they talk about their monstrous appearance and all that. But mm. I think the 21st century iteration of that is not that it's ugliness, it's merely a sight so incomprehensible and alien and beautiful that most humanoid minds simply cannot comprehend it. I absolutely think that the word monstrous means something different in 2022 than it did in 1969. Yeah. That is an easy comment to make. And when you started talking about monstrous as a word, and yet it was not ugly, immediately my mind went to, oh, like shape of water. Yes. And there's just this otherness to it that... It, depending on how you look at it, it might be ugly, but it might be beautiful, and it might just be a fish. So, <laughs> a sexy, sexy know. fish. A sexy, sexy fish. It's a bit Lovecraftian in that Lovecraft wrote about all of these eldritch abominations, the sight of which will make a man go mad, but Lovecraft was also scared of Jewish people and black people. So what Lovecraft considered monstrous was, honestly, look, the guy was a bigot. We don't need to take his aesthetic considerations on board. And yeah, now there are 
whole tumblers of monster fuckers out there. How many people in Starfleet do you think are really hoping that they can go to bed with a Medusan? I mean, absolutely. There are, and it's not even just the Medusans. There are so many Star Trek aliens or aliens in general. It's like, you know, why would you want to be stuck with just humanoids? (laughs) If you live in a world where there are other things, Obviously, I'm a Tumblr monster fucker. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, podcast like your Will Riker. Everything is beautiful. Everything has the capability of being beautiful because beauty is objective. Or subjective. I'm tired. No, I understand. (laughs) It's been a long week. I think you're right, and I do think that it's great that Star Trek and our culture has moved on and it's not simply oh ugliness oh no aside from Jenkin Pog his aesthetic still troubles me but you know we're getting there he's definitely still the weak link of the series he has definitely grown a lot he has and, and yet again it might just be that he's not my aesthetic either I mean that not just visually but also like I don't like I don't like jokes. I don't like boy jokes the most. He does feel like a character who has been conceived to appeal to the side of the audience that's not me. And yeah, that's that's exactly. completely fine because I fine. have Dahl and I have Gwyn and I have Zero and I have Rock Talk and Murph. Like, I've got the whole show here. Right. And I love them all. I definitely think that... Jankum showed a lot of ingenuity in using his prostheses instead of conventional weapons to hold off the that was fun too yeah i really liked the tentacles the robot tentacles and that reminded me of discovery and so i was like oh like shout out so it was fun to me but uh, what i liked best about Jankum this episode was that he just gave up and said, yeah, you go do that. I, I absolutely yield to a eight-year-old science whiz, you know, physics girl to figure this out and I will take care of this part. Yeah. And he was not jealous in any way. He didn't resent any of that during or after. No, no. He was really mature about it. And, and that he protected her, which... For Rock Talk, who has been pushed into the you take care of us because you're a rock, even when they're not making her be the security officer, she is still a giant rock. If someone was shooting at you, you would jump behind Rock Talk. Right. Protecting her is such a big deal. Right. And he was like, I'm throwing all of my energy into making sure that you are taken care of. Yes. Uh, and like explicitly, not even just we feel bad that you are alone for months, but explicitly there is a battle going on and I am the person who is in between you and the evil robot tentacles yeah. and I am going to keep them away from you. That was just a really rewarding scene for those two characters. It made me think, and I am reading a racial dynamic here that absolutely does not exist in the show, but it made me think of the trope of the strong black woman who doesn't need anyone to help her and how damaging that is because 
everyone needs support and reassurance and protection at some point. And if you push this trope of the person who never, ever needs that, then people in real life don't get that. Mm -hmm. And there are studies, it affects little black girls as young as eight. Yeah. Like that it is like, yeah, you're adding it to it, but it's also, it's not a stretch because there are biases that we don't realize that have been become ingrained. Like little black girls as young as seven and eight are called women Mm. more often than like 16 year old white girls or even 18 year old white girls. It's just, it's this very strange thing. It's ugly. And I think it's sometimes also applied to little girls who are fat because they're often taller and, mm-hmm. and, and larger than their peers, so mm-hmm. they're perceived as more adult. And again, they don't fit that little box of the cute little girl. Yeah. If the target audience sees this and takes their empathy for rock and extends it to real-life people, I think that's good. I think more adults should do that. Also, I think just to have Jankum as a teenage boy protecting rock talk, that's great. Like, yes. There are so many horrible stereotypes about teenage boys. Let's go with the physically ugly punk rock kid who doesn't like beauty and, yeah, he is kind and he protects people. Oh. It's just so much to love. I know. Our children are so good. <clears throat> but let's talk about Dahl because I can't get over him. <laughs> I love him so much. I did not realise last week that he was still wearing his high-top sneakers with his Starfleet uniform, and that gave me so much joy. I was like, my son son does not respect the uniform code. (laughs) Why why would he? He never would, but I love him for it. And he was so good. He has come so far. Yes. I'm just proud of him. The scene where he was trying to, you know, get people to get in the ship mm-hmm. and get all together, and but he could only talk to two or three people at a time, and how am I going to get all of these people to work together, and what am I going to do? And he figured it out. He worked the problem and came up with a solution and implemented it, and it was such a great solution. And then at the end, when Mom Janeway was, like, putting into her log how using the things that that held them contained in order to help them break free was such a uh, brilliant metaphor and i was like i can't take this this is too like too much for me (laughs) and how devoted he was to gwyn how Mm -hmm. brave he was he was completely fearless about making sure that she knew that he was there for her again like that parallel with rock and jankum and then you know doll is gonna be that i'm here to rescue you and he completely failed but (laughs) did not give up and it was just so beautiful to me no it was amazing and the bit where he jumps on the transporter pad and he doesn't have a plan but he's like i'll let you know when i work it out that was so so kelvin versus kirk Exactly! I was crying! You don't understand. 
I love him so much, and absolutely he is Kelvin vs. Kirk. And I love him so much too. It's just incredible to me. I definitely feel like we're approaching a point where we need to move beyond this character is like Jim Kirk as a shorthand for this is a character the audience should pay attention to. I think we discussed how that was a problem with Michael's characterization in the season four premiere. But mm-hmm. at the same time, this is important. And there is a generation of Trekkies who are going to meet Jim Kirk and go, oh, he's like Dahl, instead of the other way around. Yes. I think that it's better in Prodigy than it is in Discovery because of that, because kids are coming to Prodigy. Also, Michael was already an established character, whereas Mm. Dahl is very much his own person. And the Kirkness isn't erasing stuff that was already there. Right, yes. I agree with that. Yeah. So we've we've saved the Cation. We've saved everybody. Saved everybody! It feels like a Stephen Moffat everybody lives story. Which I think is appropriate because Moffat was also running Doctor Who as a family drama. Yes, exactly. I was really scared when Gwyn briefly lost her mind. I was terrified we were going to be stuck with that for like six months, and I was not prepared. No, I was going to have to have a little cry on the train. I really appreciate that they understood that you can't do that for something that you want a 12-year-old to watch. Yeah. Especially in the middle of a pandemic. Oh my god. We have been literally traumatized. Everyone in the world has been traumatized for two years. You don't do that to kids. No, no. And there is still a sense that time has passed and kids, well, anyone who wants to go out and write Gwyn Hurt Comfort Fig about her recovery has six months to do it and that's going to be great, but I would not want to leave this child in that position. Right. And I think that partially that's another reason that I love Prodigy so much is that it's sort of, you know, it's that formula. We talked about how procedurals have a formula and Mm. that's comforting yes and similarly media that is created for kids young teens has a formula and that is also comforting as much as bad things happen in this series and people complain that it's too dark and too traumatic for kids no 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 people don't understand no no kids need wrong Look, my feeling is that children need to have dark things and scary things and genuine stakes in their adventures. And Absolutely. My experience of young audiences is that they absolutely know when they're being talked down to and will reject that. But at the same time, you do need to provide a safe landing. And part of that is also earning that safe landing. It's a balance beam, and that's yeah. another thing that this show succeeds at. Yeah. It's really rewarding. I just, I'm I'm so happy. My daughter is 25. Yeah. And so she's exactly the same age as Pokemon and Blue's Clues. Oh, my God. Well, now I feel I know, old. Like... <laughs> but so it's interesting to see the differences between the media that was made, you know, when I was 
10, and the media that was made when she was 10, and the media that's being made now. It's really interesting to see that growth. Absolutely. I really appreciate it. And exactly, it's that sense of being talked down to, that sense of the only reason you're watching this is because you have this toy or you want to be a cowboy. They didn't trust kids to follow along with a story. I was just thinking, I was not allowed to watch cartoons much as a kid, but I watched Captain Planet whenever I could. I was a big Dinka Wheeler shipper. She was from the Soviet Union, he was from America, it's meant to be. And that show was so, so, so patronising. Like, yes, we kind of love it now for how cheesy it is, but the quality of writing and the depth of storytelling in animation has come so far. And I think a big part of that is Avatar The Last Airbender in the 2000s, and then that ended and the writers mostly moved on to The Clone Wars. And Mm -hmm. between the two of them, they just caused this massive explosion in quality across children's media. So The Bad Batch, I'm going to bring it up again. Yes. But, like, The Bad Batch literally starts with Order 66. Order 66 is the most devastating thing that ever happened in Star Wars. And for some reason, people are obsessed with it right now. Or I guess just Dave Filoni maybe is obsessed with it right now. But Where Dave Filoni goes, we reluctantly follow. Still (laughs) mad about Bean Dad Luke, for the record. That comment that, oh my gosh, Prodigy is so dark. And it's like, yeah, Prodigy is dark. The Bad Batch is dark. Order 66 is dark. Revenge of the Sith is dark. Mm -hmm. But... Again, it's this idea of trusting their audience. They trust adults and children to be able to handle it and to understand why they're telling that story and to understand where the darkness is coming from. The reason we tell stories about dragons is because real kids have to deal with real stuff that is really terrible and really dark. For example... The pandemic. How many grandmothers have died? We're all living through a mass casualty event. So pretending like that's not happening and that all we want is, you know, a story about a unicorn that makes a friend. That's not all we need in this moment. People need to feel that escape, but they also need to feel catharsis. They need to have a way to explain what they're feeling and how lost they feel and what they need. Yeah. And stories help that. I have just dug up the famous G.K. Chesterton quote, Fairy tales do not tell children dragons exist. Children already know the dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children the dragons can be killed. Exactly. That's the value of story, and that's the value of darkness in children's media. And when I was a small child obsessed with an Australian soap opera, I would tell myself stories where the whole town was flooded and people were going to die, and my favourite character had to be saved. I was a five-year-old shipper. I'm not ashamed. Um, (laughs) Have I mentioned my My Little Pony adventures on this uh, podcast before? Oh my goodness. I wasn't allowed to have Barbies as a child, so I had My Little Ponies. 
put my my little phonies every time i got a new one i would tell the story of how they had been tragically separated from the rest of the family <laughs> in this horrible pony war that like devastated the pony population and it was always like children i would always mm -hmm. have the baby ponies and then their mother would be like oh my baby was lost in the war but now you're back i would play out the entire drama in my room every single time <laughs> with like music and settings you know like props everything every single time this horrible war that happened to ponyland and ripped families apart whenever i got a new pony they would come back together again and it was always like the older sister didn't know that they had a younger sister who was lost in the war oh my god you know i love a secret baby and that's the thing like we had pretty normal childhoods at that point if you were young enough to be getting my little ponies i assume your mum was still around Right. Yes. Yeah. So this is the story that we as normal little girls were telling. And that's messed up in an amazing way. But obviously on some level we needed that. We were aware that bad things were happening in the world, whether they were natural disasters or wars. And we needed to process that through play and story. Exactly. Speaking of stories that meant a lot to me when I was young. I know I know where this is going. <laughs> I know Jane Wayne Chicote are the second on your list of couples in this series, but <laughs> I just want to say that I know that when the showrunners say that this is a new chapter in the Jane Wayne Chicote relationship, they are not literally saying they're going to get married and mash their faces together, but that is what I read. That is what I heard and I cannot be stopped. And you're not alone. I oh, saw no. one tweet that I that I thought like summed it up really well. It was like the Jet Sea Nation <laughs> is unable to tweet right now because we all died when that happened. I was spoiled for that because the level of excitement was just such that people were forgetting to tag. And I was annoyed, but I also wasn't mad because it meant that I got like an hour of anticipation before I watched the show. I'm not even a huge JC shipper, and I, it no. was still rewarding. Like, my take is, obviously, Chakotay is not good enough for Janeway, but he is the himbo <laughs> she wants, and therefore, he is the himbo she should have. <laughs> himbo she wants, perfect. Also, I'm open to the possibility that the writing for him in Prodigy will be much better than it was in Voyager. Imagine! Imagine a well-written Chakotay. Oh, I am. And don't get me wrong, right? I, have, I have read many great Chakotay fics over the years. I know it can be done. And I am so excited for the OTP of my later adolescence to be back. I'm obviously also always hanging out for Beverly to turn up in Picard. You know, I, I, I don't stop shipping things. I just move on to other things and just collect them at the back of my heart. Anyway, the Janeway and Chakotay of it all. I'm afraid that they have gone and given me a middle-aged OTP in this series, so sorry, I'm going to ruin it, but <laughs> just a week after I was saying that they saw me coming and declined to provide that. <laughs> I just love my Gwyn and Dahl. Oh my I goodness. Their relationship, it's still not romantic. I think that 
they care about each other deeply, but neither of them would recognize it as a romantic attachment. But I love seeing the groundwork being laid. And honestly, friends who love each other, who realize that they also love each other romantically is kind of my favorite thing. Exactly. That was what I was going to say. My favorite thing is friends who meet when they're young and have like 20 years of just being best friends. And then all of a sudden are like, wait a minute, we're in love. That's my favorite thing. We love each other. And it turns out that we have loved each other all our lives. It's... All this time. And then yes. I just cry forever. And like, I can totally see Gwyn and Dahl having other relationships and still always coming back to each other. Like they are already at that point in my trajectory of relationships. It's like, I don't care that you're 17. I can see you when you're 50 and it's going to be great. I so... cut out the bit of our episode a couple of weeks ago where I compared them to my headcanon Lorca Cornwell because I thought that was self-indulgent. It is self-indulgent, but I'm leaving it in this time because that's what I see. I just love them so much. So what I say is I ship all best friends. I always feel that there's someone, it's either unrequited, but not exactly unrequited because they're still in love, but they're not in love, you know? Mm. Or it's eventually they get together and it just takes them a really long time. Yes. Or they just have a, a physical relationship and a casual relationship, but also are like deeply platonically in love, but can have sex when they want to. Right. That's and maybe, so maybe one day when they're older, it will become a monogamous long-term commitment or maybe it won't. Exactly. Relationships based in friendship is, I guess what I'm saying. And I'm not saying that I'm anti just friendship. No, no. I'm not saying that. I just want to put that out there. I'm not against friendships. But relationships that start as friendship and become something else, something deeper. Or just stay the same but change. Mm. If that makes sense. All the emotions stay, but maybe the way that they express them changes. That's my favorite relationship type. Certainly in fanfic and i'm very happy because gwyn and Dahl already have a relationship that is strong enough to become that yes is what i'm saying that's what it is and the me. thing is part of the reason that i like relationships that build out of friendships is that let's face it star trek which was very formative for me is not very good at constructing a relationship from scratch they are mm -hmm. much better at established relationships and people who are in unrequited love for many years than mm -hmm. someone meeting and being interested and building a relationship from that. I think they're getting better. I think Michael and Book feel really real in a way that a lot of other Star Trek relationships haven't. And because I grew up watching Star Trek, my preference is to avoid the whole dating cliche stuff <laughs> and just... <laughs> just skip straight to a more complex relationship. Maybe it's also that I don't date in real life. Anyway, therapy with Liz. Uh, My cat is 
very upset. She's been yelling for the past 10 minutes. I'm sorry. I think it's because your cat is a really strong Janeway Paris shipper and is pretty mad about all this Chakotay nonsense <laughs> happening. That, that would make sense. <laughs> if she's my cat. Right. She's like, I don't want to break me. up Paris and Bellana, though. Like, no, I'm not, no. I'm not angry about that, so. Remember, we'll <laughs> always have the lizard babies. Exactly. And my theory that Murph is a lizard baby. I like your theory that Murph is a lizard baby. I like the idea that the lizard babies exist somewhere. <laughs> They're just the right age to join the prodigy crew. The, the crew. Along exactly. with Seska's son. So so this is a, a good way to bring in... I really love that Kate Mulgrew is playing multiple Janeways. She is playing so many Janeways right now. <laughs> she's also playing two of them in Star Trek Online. Good on you, Kate Mulgrew. I'm excited for real Janeway mm. and Hollow Janeway because Hollow Janeway has become important as well it's like five or six weeks later and i have not gotten over when doll called out for janeway when he was lost on the planet in like episode three no <laughs> i've been thinking about that too i will literally never get over that moment because it was so amazing and i just love that janeway is their mom but is also sort of their peer Yes, and it's just really, really fun to me. And so I love Hollow Janeway, and I'm excited for there to be dueling Janeways. I'm very keen for Hollow Janeway and Real Janeway to be at odds. Because if, yes! Jan if the Admiral is going to be the antagonist for the second half of the season, and I saw the showrunners compare it to The Fugitive, where the antagonist is not a villain, they're just someone whose goals do not align with the heroes, which I think is great. Hollow Janeway is going to protect her crew, and real Janeway thinks she's saving Chakotay, and that is also sort of Hollow Janeway's goal, so... Absolutely, they are going to meet. The kids are going to have a field day. Janeway and her crew are not going to be impressed with these delinquent teens. And I am delighted. Oh, delighted. I can't wait. I'm so excited. I also I want to flag that we all thought that David Diggs and, and Jamila Jamil would be Chakotay's crew and actually they're Janeway's. And that delights mm. me. Unspeakably. <laughs> But also, I really hope Tuvok is on that ship. The showrunners, have ex <gasps> the showrunners explicitly said that Tuvok will not be in the series, and I was like, "You are dead to me." Friendship ended with Prodigy. Obviously, I've forgiven it, but I think they're making a poor choice. Yeah, poor choice. The only way I would accept it is if he didn't want to leave his family. Which I could see. I sort of understand. He's like... Yeah, I was away for seven years, and in an unemotional and logical way, I miss them. And logic dictates that I am going to stay very close to my wife and children and grandchildren for the next... Mm. Forever. I need to sit down and work out a timeline of where all the Voyager crew are at this time, because if we're coming up to the Romulan supernova, then... Seven has joined or is about to join the Fenris Rangers and Echeb only right. has a few years to live. So it's 
going to be fun to work out where everyone is and what they're doing. I mean, I love feeling like this about these characters that I have loved for so long, who literally shaped my life mm. in certain ways, and they're still around and they're still shaping my life. Yes! If you had told me in 2017, when I had just watched the first episode of Discovery, and I was like, is this good? I don't know, but I'm having fun and I'm going to stick with it. If you had told me then that a few years later we would have canonical Janeway and a show where Chakotay is playing a supporting role and we would also have a series with Seven of Nine and she's in a relationship with an amazing female character and also that there would be an animated Star Trek comedy and I would enjoy it, I would have thought you were joking. (laughs) The amount of Star Trek that exists right now is... Too much. Already blowing my mind. So it's just crazy to me. How did we get here? If you told me in 2017 that any of that was happening, I would be like, what? Man. Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Antimatterpod. You can find our show notes at antimatterpod.com, including links to our social media, credits for our theme music, and transcripts of our episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr, all at AntimatterPod, and write to us at mail at antimatterpod.com. If you like us, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume your podcasts. The more reviews, the easier it is for new listeners to find us. But if you want to stop listening to us on Spotify, that is completely fine by us. And join us next week when we'll be discussing the return of Star Trek Discovery and probably having some feelings. 